0: Heavenly Father, we hear the word that You gave through Your Son to the church at Ephesus. And I don't imagine there's a single soul here who thought to themselves, Oh, that's not me. We know, Father, oftentimes we do that which we do in the name of Christ, but not out of love. You are our Father, and You are our Creator, and You are love itself. I pray, Lord, that You would use this passage this morning to call Your people to live lives of loving obedience. We want to be holy as You are holy, and we want to live as You've called us to live, because you first loved us. So I pray, Father, that you would be gracious with us, that you would cause us to hear well this morning, that as we consider Ephesus, we would consider ourselves and we would consider Christ Community Church. For those of us, Lord, who are exercising our Christian life out of routine, I pray for great conviction, and that we would this very day repent and turn to You and walk in righteousness out of love. We praise You for this letter and all the letters that You've given us, that we might rightly examine ourselves in light of Your Spirit. And then by your Spirit be changed. Do that for us this morning, Father, I pray. For those of us who are sleepy, I pray you would wake us up. For those who are distracted, I pray you would give us focus. For those who are doing this by routine, I pray you would give us love. Do a mighty work here, I pray, by your Spirit for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. That's not a passage you can hear read and think, oh yeah, I'm fine. It's one that cuts immediately because we know we all do things. We all do things in the name of Christ that oftentimes have nothing to do with our love for God and everything to do with self-glory. As I was working through this passage this week with great conviction in my own heart, I thought, how can I preach something that I think I do so poorly? But I'm very thankful because the Holy Spirit wants to cause me to repent too. I pray that you find this passage encouraging today and not discouraging. The title of the sermon is First Love. It's first love. And that first love is to be God first, foremost, and forever. If you were here with us last week, we had a chance to join the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, and we got a glimpse of the vision of the Son of Man. And of course, that was Jesus Christ in His glorified state. And I think we rightly concluded last week that if you can get a glimpse of Jesus as He truly is right now, if you can daily see His glory then you will live a different life. You will be obedient in love. You will live as a child of God instead of a child of wrath. We get to pick up today with this Son of Man, the glorious Jesus Christ, now speaking to the Apostle John, telling him to write. And of course, he's going to begin writing the very book that we have in our hands, the book of Revelation. He tells him to write down everything that he sees and everything he's about to hear And then he's going to send them to seven churches that are in Asia Minor. But before he goes into the body of the book, the cycle of judgment, the reason we are to be encouraged, and then, of course, his coming again in glory at the end of the days, before he does that, Jesus speaks to John and says, I want you to send seven messages, seven mini letters to these seven churches. And so in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you have the seven letters written to the seven churches. And they all have a very similar pattern. Each one has an introduction. And in the introduction, it's addressed to, remember the seven stars, that's the angel, we believe, the angel over that, those individual churches. And then a brief introduction about something about Jesus as we saw in the previous chapter, something about the glorious Son of Man who's writing. And then in the body of each letter, we have a a commendation, something they're doing right. Jesus praises them. And then we have a correction, something they're doing wrong, and Jesus calls them to repent or be judged. And then each mini-letter has a closing where we're called to listen, and then an encouragement to overcome. Jesus is speaking specifically to each church, but... In speaking to each church, he's talking to all seven and indeed the universal church. Look at verse 7 in chapter 2. Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. You say, well, wait a minute. If he's talking to Ephesus, why is it plural? It's plural because it belongs to all seven and it belongs to every church throughout the history of the church, which means, my beloved, it belongs to us too. So, we want to be very careful not to say, well, that was for Ephesus. It doesn't apply to Christ's community church. It most certainly applies, and Jesus says so. So, his first letter is addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And this is the same church that the Apostle Paul, years before, wrote his letter to. Ephesus, under Roman rule, was the capital of the entire province of Asia, and it was a thriving metropolis a place where commerce and politics and education the arts abounded. And religion in particular, there was a temple to Artemis, there was a temple to Julius Caesar, and many believe there was actually a temple when John was writing to Emperor Domitian, who was persecuting the church at this exact time. Now, Ephesus, we know, was a place where Paul spent many years, and some believe John was there for a long time too. And so Ephesus was a doctrinally sound mature church they knew christian doctrine they understood the word of god they knew how to proclaim the gospel and to live as a people of god but jesus has something to remind them in all their great orthodoxy he says at the end of verse one the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand we believe those seven stars again are the seven angels an angel for each church and he says i'm the one talking not john And I hold the seven angels. Each angel has the power to both bless and to judge. And then he says, I'm the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Those are the churches, the seven churches. He says, I'm here. I'm present. I'm here to see and to encourage and to comfort. And I'm here, if necessary, to judge if you continue in rebellion. And so his proximity is to bring both encouragement and a warning Now, for the church at Ephesus, Jesus has a word, I believe, that can be applied to many sound, doctrinally sound, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches today. And I certainly think to us as well. The good they were doing on the outside, the, the firm orthodoxy, the standing in the midst of persecution was overshadowed by a hideous sin on the inside, that hideous sin being a lack of love for God. This morning, I would like for us to hear, I really would, with all our might, our Lord's words to the church at Ephesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want us to examine ourselves individually, and I want us to examine our church, and I want us to ask ourselves, are we lacking in our love for God? Do I lack, do you lack, and do we lack in our love for God? And if so, what do we need to do today To make corrections, I'd like to do that by looking at three things one, an external good, two, an internal bad, and three, a necessary correction. An external good, something that we'll see Ephesus was doing that was really good, something that we'll see on the inside was really bad, and then what do we do about it? How do we make a course correction in light of what Jesus revealed to them and by the Holy Spirit will reveal to us? The theme of the sermon is simple. Love God most or live as a hypocrite. If you are a Christian, you must love God first and foremost or you are, and I say this in love, we are hypocrites. We are hypocrites. All right, are you with me? Okay. Number one, an external good. Jesus says to the Christian in Ephesus, look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patience, Endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So Jesus begins and he says, I I know your works, I know your deeds. He's the great shepherd of his sheep. He knows specifically the things that the church in Ephesus, the things they're doing that are good, the things they're doing that are bad. But we, we heard last week that Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. He doesn't just see what they're doing on the outside. He discerns their hearts. He knows not only what they do, but why they do what they do. He discerns their motives. Now, he begins here with commendation. And, and what some of the things the church at Ephesus were doing were very, very good. He first commends them for their persistence in working hard. The term they use there is toiling. They were toiling for the sake of the gospel in the midst of an extremely hostile environment, hostile towards Christians, particularly under the reign of Domitian. Many of the believers in the church in Ephesus refused to bow down and participate in the emperor cult, and therefore they were dehumanized. They were treated as second-class citizens social, and economic outcast, And pending upon the governing authorities in the local regions around Ephesus, many of them were tortured, some like John were exiled, and some were brutally murdered. Brutally murdered. Jesus commends them for enduring such sacrifices. Look at verse two, he said, for your patient endurance. Endurance in what? For suffering for the sake of Christ. For staying the cause of Jesus without capitulation. And then he says in verse 3, you did this for my name's sake. Verse 3 says, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In other words, Ephesus was not a slothful church. It wasn't a cowardice church. It wasn't a retreating church. They remained active and faithful in the ministry in the midst of horrible persecution. They were out proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were making disciples, they were adding members to their church, even though they were being mocked and persecuted for doing it. And the second thing that Jesus commends them for is their spiritual discernment. Look at verse two again. He says in the latter part of verse two, "You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false." So it was not uncommon for Teachers, they were called circuit teachers, circuit preachers, to go around from place to place, and they would teach doctrine some good, some not so good. Some would actually claim to be apostles, even though they were not, and they would do that primarily for money. But now remember, Paul had been in Ephesus, John was likely in Ephesus, and therefore this church was doctrinally sound. They knew the Word of God. And so when someone would come into town and they'd be preaching or teaching something that was false... They would take that false teaching and they would apply it to the word of God and if it was not right, they would throw it out. And so Jesus commends them for testing everything against the word and standing in orthodoxy. He affirms this actually, this discernment in verse six. Look at verse six. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, Jesus is speaking. He says, which I also hate. So Jesus says, I hate their works too. Now we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans Uh, There's lots of speculation on that. We will hear a little bit more when Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamum because he actually brings them up again. There's probably some connection between the Nicolaitans and the teachings of Balaam. Um, and In fact, the word Balaam in the Hebrew and the word Nicolaitans in the Greek, they actually mean the same thing. It means to uh, conquer or to conquer the people. Um, And if that's true, if there is a connection and we're going to draw from Pergamum, then it's likely that the Nicolaitans, they likely advocated sexual morality, including temple prostitution. Jesus says, I hate that, and you hate it too. And they likely engaged in uh, food sacrifice to idols and the eating of that food. And Jesus says, I hate that, and you hate it too. And so Jesus begins uh, his teaching and this letter to Ephesus with very, very high marks. They were persistent in their hard work in the midst of persecution. They remained orthodox in their faith, discerning what it was true and what was false. They would be described, I think, like many churches today. They were a, a doctrinally sound, gospel-preaching church. Many churches today, hopefully, that would describe us and certainly churches that we affiliate with So on the outside, things in Ephesus, they looked really good. They looked really good for the church. And I imagine when this letter was first being read by the courier who took it to Ephesus, it would probably fill them with joy, thinking, Jesus, this is Jesus. Remember the one who speaks the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This is Jesus saying that we're doing all right. Our orthodoxy is good. We're persistent in the faith. We're not capitulating the culture. We're doing all right. In fact, I would imagine it's very much like that initial affirmation that maybe you've received from a teacher or a, or a coach or an employer where they're talking about the good things that they see and, and immediately you're filled with joy. And then the evaluation continues and suddenly things aren't all that rosy. And suddenly the criticism comes in and you realize that you might be in trouble. Point number two, the internal bad. So after hearing a review that I would argue most churches would have loved to have heard. Certainly churches here in the Bay Area, how incredible if Christ were to say that about us, that you remain firm, you work persistently in the midst of persecution, that you stay stay firm on the orthodoxy of the word of God. But Jesus says then something in verse four that in essence nullifies all their hard work and all their good orthodoxy. Did you notice that? He reveals a truth that I think every believer knows all too well and that the appearances can be deceiving what we see on the outside doesn't always match what's going on on the inside look at verse four jesus says but i have this against you now there's a complete pause right the the church has been gathered in ephesus and they're listening to this and they received these these affirmations from our lord and now their breath is taken away i have this against you you have abandoned the love you had at first First of all, my beloved, no one wants Jesus Christ saying anything negative about any church, any true church, even in the smallest sense, right? We don't, we don't want Christ displeased with his bride in the smallest sense. But these words are devastating. I would say some of the most devastating words he could have uttered. Jesus says, what I see on the outside, your persistent work, your fidelity of the gospel, your continued making disciples, your orthodoxy in the faith, it doesn't match your heart. Jesus is saying lovingly and firmly, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. They had abandoned, forsaken the love they had when God first made them a church, when they were first saved and brought together. Now, my beloved, the first and greatest commandment, you know it is to what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is saying with all your good works with all the stuff on the outside you're missing the first and greatest commandment you don't love God Jesus is saying you don't love me and I'm your savior they were in essence a loveless church Now this fundamental mistake we know It's not uncommon. You say, well, how do we know it's not uncommon? We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it throughout the history of the church. We see it in our own lives, and we see it in our own church. So we realize this is a very real problem. We know that because the Bible teaches that every good thought, every right deed, and every moral action, if it's truly good and truly right and truly moral, must be founded, listen with all your might, in the love of God. If we say that anything's good that we're doing in our lives, it must be grounded in the love of God, the love He has for us, and our expressed love for Him as to why we do it. So when we work hard for Christ, when we endure patiently persecution at work or at school or in our family, When we hold fast to the word of God, we say, this is the gospel, this is what the Bible teaches, and we do not compromise and yet have no love relationship with the living God. Our good works for God are not good. They're not good. They look good, they sound good, they even maybe make us feel good, but if we do all these things and we do not do them out of our love for God and God's love for us, then they are in and of themselves not good. They aren't good because that means they're being, being driven by something other than a love for God. I mean, there are lots of things. Some of the basic things for us, though, we do things out of obligation, right? Oftentimes, we serve God because we feel obligated to do so. If I don't do it, I'll be punished, or I'll be minimally disciplined. And if I do do it, then I'll get a nice little reward. I'll get a cookie or something. Or they, we are driven oftentimes by self-glory. I think that's probably the big one. If I do this, people will praise me. People will honor me. People will look favorably upon me. Friends, any work we do that is not from a heart captured by the love of God is not pleasing to God. It doesn't matter what it is. You see, the disposition of the heart is what differentiates Christianity from all other worldviews. It's what makes Christianity Christianity. God's people have always been marked out and set apart, listen closely, by God's love for them which has produced in them a love for him which has led to obedience. For the entire history of God intervening with his people, his people have been marked out by God's love for his people, the people's love for God and then living in obedience because of that love. That's why Paul's able to say and literally mean 1 Corinthians 6.14, let all that you do be done, what? In love. Everything. Everything. Every waking moment, every thought, every action, every word, Paul says, God says, Jesus says, do it in love or don't do it at all. Now some of you might say, well, what does it matter as long as we're doing the right thing? Right? Let's be pragmatic here, Pastor. As long as we're doing the right thing, what does it matter that we have to love God in what we do? Why can't we just do? Well, first of all, if the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you're not doing that, then then you're not being obedient at all, right? I mean, that's a, a simple deduction, right? If we are not doing everything we do out of our love for God, then whatever we're doing ultimately is not pleasing to Him. But secondly, apart from loving God above all else, that means there's no real transformation of heart and mind. Right? There's, no, there's no real change taking place. God, God did not send His Son to die on a cross to, to change our behavior. He's not into behavior modification. He's into transformation of heart and mind to make sinners who are dead alive in Christ. And so, it is the love of God expressed through Christ and extended to us freely by grace through faith that turns the heart of stone to flesh. It turns the heart of rebellion to submission and desire from duty to what? To choice. It's the work of God in our lives through love. In other words, where there is no love for God, my beloved, there is no salvation. Now, that's a hard statement. If there is no love for God in what you do, there is no salvation. Now listen, the heart born again by God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit will love God most and express that love through loving obedience. So if you're born again, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you will be motivated and driven by the love of God. And that will be manifest in what you do and how you love others. John is able to say, the Apostle John is able to say in a letter he wrote before Revelation, 1 John 4, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not, what, know God because God is love. Now that's that's sobering, my beloved. We do lots of things in the name of Christ, oftentimes out of routine. The question we want to ask ourselves today is do we do it out of love? And if not, are we in jeopardy of not even being saved? The teaching is simple, and I think most of us have experienced the disconnect between how we live and the motivations of our heart. I mean, every single one of us has, maybe even as early as this morning, been hypocritical in our approach toward God. You know, 50 years of marriage may reveal a fantastic love story, or perseverance by necessity and grit. Still 50 years, doesn't tell us a lot about the heart. That promotion at work that you get, it may reveal a true devotion to your company or a selfish desire to simply be rich and famous. Earning that MVP on that team may display a selfless commitment to the team, or it may display a selfish desire to be glorified by your friends and family. In other words, the outside can look the same when the internal motivations may be very, very different. So the Ephesians, for example, uh, in hating the Nicolaitans, if the Nicolaitans practiced sexual immorality, then we might assume that the, the Ephesians were sexually very moral, and they probably stayed in their covenant marriages. They didn't get divorces and they didn't cheat on their spouses like the culture did. But the question is, why would, they, why would they do that? If they had abandoned their first love for God, then what motivation would they have not to cheat on their spouses or to file for divorce when things weren't going well in the home? Well, it might have been that they, they did not desire to be dishonored by the church. Maybe they didn't want to be considered an adulterer or divorcee. Maybe they didn't want to be looked at as a covenant breaker because that would have been bad in the context of their community. Maybe they didn't want to be thought of as Nicolaitans because they hated the Nicolaitans and they didn't want to be hated too. The problem with all those reasons is that they were all self serving. They were not because of their love for God. If their faithfulness to marriage was not motivated out of their love for God, then they remained faithful for self-serving, inward-turned reasons. Pride, glory, convenience, culture, whatever it is, the problem is this. With self-serving, inward-turned motivations, it's those same motivations that could easily lead to the exact opposite behavior. Why not commit adultery? If you're motivated by self, then why not commit adultery or why not file for divorce? Who cares what the church thinks if you're a covenant breaker? Who cares if you're identified as a Nicolation. In other words, where there is no love for God, listen closely, obedience and disobedience become two sides of the same self-serving, self-motivated coin. You see that. Where there is no love for God, obedience and disobedience become two sides of the same self-serving, self-motivated coin. You may have two entirely different responses, but the motivation is still about you. And not about God or your love for God. So apart from the eternal love for God as the primary moving force in your life, you may or you may not commit adultery. You may or may not divorce or covet or lie or steal for the exact same self-serving, self-glorifying reasons. But what if, my beloved, what if you are married and you remained married in your covenant Because you know that it would displease the one that you love most who is God if you were to get a divorce. What if you remain faithful to your spouse because the lover of your soul, the true lover of your soul, has remained faithful to you even when you were not so faithful to him? What if you remain in the covenant of marriage because the covenant you entered was made by God? And he said very clearly, let no man tear it apart. What if you remained in the marriage because God called you to love your spouse for better or for worse until death do you part and you want to honor God? Well, my beloved, all those are others centered. They're others focused, outward turned, God-glorifying motivations And this is what the love of God does to the sinful heart. It changes the heart and character of those who repent and believe. It changes us from being self-consumed and self-motivated and self-serving to others-focused, desiring what is most honoring to God and what is best for those made in His image. And that's why, my beloved there, I don't believe there could have been more condemning words from Jesus to the church in Ephesus than for him to say, you abandon your first love. Him saying, you don't love me first anymore. I don't believe he could have said anything that would have been more hurtful. He was essentially saying to them as a church, you're just going through the motions. You're just going through the motions. You have no power. You have no power in the gospel because there is no love. And when there is no love for God, then that church, although meeting and gathering and singing and maybe even preaching like today, it's not a real church if it is a loveless church. Now, it doesn't mean that they were truly loveless. They actually had other lovers, right? They loved their hard work. They loved their reputation. They loved the fact that they were persistent in the midst of persecution. They loved, no doubt, that they were orthodox. They could say, we know we're right. This is God's word. They loved it. Maybe it's the same for us. Those other loves might be good things like marriage or our ministries or our careers. So the question we want to ask ourselves before we get to our last point is why do you do what you do for Christ? Why do we do why do we do what we do as a church for Jesus? What are our motivations? Do you work hard to remain faithful? to God's word? Do we strive to preach the gospel and preach from His word and remain orthodox? Because in so doing, we can take pride in it. We can say we're orthodox. We can say this is God's word. Or do we do it because God is truth and we love God? God is truth and we love God and we don't want to be liars. We want to be truth tellers for the glory of God. That's a better reason Infinitely better. Do we gather on Sundays? Well, here's a very personal question since you're here. Do we gather on Sundays like this to worship God as one body because it's Sunday? I mean, this is what Christians do on Sunday. You've got to be in church. You're supposed to gather with the saints. You're not supposed to forsake the gathering of the saints. Where are you gathered here? I pray out of your deep love for Jesus and you want to worship him with God's people. You want to sing with God's people and you want to pray with God's people and you want to hear the word proclaimed because you love Jesus. Do you strive to share the gospel with the lost and make disciples because Christ has commanded you to? That is the great commission and you have to. Or do you share the gospel with family and friends? because you want them to know God and worship God because of your great love for God. You want all those that you know to enter in the kingdom so they can enjoy and worship and love God as you do because He's that lovable. And so you're always teaching and you're always preaching and you're always making disciples saying, come in, come in, my God is this good. Very different reasons. Now we know without question If you're living in willful, unrepentant sin, it reveals you have a love problem with God. That's obvious. John chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus said, If you love me, what? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So if you're living in willful, unrepentant sin, if you're not obeying the commandments of God, we know there's a love problem. But in Ephesus, and for many obedient Christians in churches today, we can appear to be very obedient on the outside when all the while we are rotting away on the inside from loveless hearts. We're gathered here today in obedience to God. But in our own hearts, are we here because we want to be here out of our deep, passionate love for God? So what started off well for the Church in Ephesus turned ugly because the most fundamental thing they were commanded to do, the most fundamental thing that we are commanded to do, the one thing they needed to listen, to be authentic, to not be schizophrenic, to not be hypocritical, the one thing they needed most they were missing, and that was their love for God. My beloved, I I have yet to meet someone who has said, You know, I want to live a schizophrenic life, I want to be hypocritical. Most people want to be whole. We want our lives on the outside to match our lives on the inside. Well, that cannot happen apart from your love for God because God loved you first in Christ. Paul made this so clear. 1 Corinthians 13, you heard it once. Listen again with all your might. Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, Paul says, I am nothing. That's Paul. Your greatest works for Christ, your greatest endeavors for the Lord, if not grounded in your love for God, makes them worthless and makes you nothing. So the Ephesians thought they were doing the right things in the name of the Lord, all the while missing the most important thing, and that was their love of God. It, it is, I would argue, one of our more grievous and hidden sins, because we can't see it, can we? I mean, I can't see it in you, and you can't see it in me. In fact, I would argue that the longer that we walk with the Lord, the easier it is to hide. We get into routines and habits. We read our Bible, and we pray. We do work in the the community, maybe serving, maybe sharing the gospel. We gather on Sundays, but no one knows your heart except Christ and you, you know. You know why you do what you do. It's a grievous sin to live like a Christian without a love for God. It requires, I believe, an immediate response by those of us who may struggle with it. An immediate response or we will suffer the consequences because this is no small matter for you individually and certainly no small matter for us as a church. So how do we make this course correction? What if you're sitting there going, yeah, you described me pretty well. I think I would have fit in well at Ephesus. I put on a show, but in my heart of hearts, I do not love God most. Point number three, I pray you're with me because this correction is a necessary correction for many of us. Look at verse 5 again, please. Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So Jesus reminds them that this has not always been the case for Ephesus. There was a time in their past when the Ephesian church, and Paul even says this in his letter, when they had a deep love for God because of Christ. A deep love. They were a healthy church, not only on the outside, but on the inside. So what happened? What happened in Ephesus? You say, well, we don't, we don't have to speculate, do we? We don't. Look at verse four. Jesus told us what happened in Ephesus. Verse four, Jesus said, you have abandoned the love you had at first. You abandoned Christ. Now that word, abandoned, here, it's not the same as divorce. It's interesting. Still in the marriage, the lampstand has not been taken away, so they're still married to Jesus, but they have separated themselves they have removed themselves from Christ as their covering. Now, of all the metaphors in the Bible that I think express God's love for His people and His people's expected love for God, it's the metaphor of marriage, the metaphor of a husband and a wife. I believe that reveals best the type of love we're supposed to have for God and God for us. And Jesus, we know, is our groom, and we, the church, are His bride. And Jesus as our groom, he is to be what? He's to be our first love. He's to be our greatest love. No greater passion in your life than Christ, your groom, your husband. He's the one who promised to protect and provide for us out of his infinite love for us. Christ promised to be our covering like the biblical husband's mandate in Ephesians chapter 5 to protect us and provide for us. He is faithful. He has always been faithful to his church. The problem is not Jesus. The problem is us when we abandon what? We abandon the marriage. We separate ourselves from our covering, from our protection and our provision. And when we do, my beloved, either individually or as a church, we will necessarily suffer pain and ultimately destruction if we do not repent and turn back. Now, most Christians or churches don't wake up one day and suddenly have no love for God. That's generally not how it works. In fact, for the Ephesian church, if Paul was writing in the early 90s, it took him 40 years. 40 years from being obedient on the outside and loving on the inside to just obeying on the outside and having no love for God. In other words, their good routine, and it was a good routine In their obedience and their orthodoxy, they had forgotten why they were being obedient and why they were being orthodox. There's a great danger, my beloved, in routine. Routine can be good, but it also can be numbing. And you're not asking, why am I doing, what am I doing? Why why am I reading my Bible? Why am I praying? Why am I making disciples? Why am I doing this? Love always begins to fade in all relationships that are not cultivated properly. Other things become more important, some good things, some bad things, some things that actually replace the joy that that relationship is supposed to provide. In our physical marriages, we often see husbands and wives forsaking their spouses for their kids or their careers or for friends and families. We do the same with God, don't we? We forsake our serving others out of our love for God by serving ourselves. We forsake our time alone with God in his word, in prayer, for time that we can, what? Spend time watching TV or engage in social media. We forsake the gathering of the saints on Sunday or small groups for work or me time or this time of year for football. It's amazing to me the amount of love that we have for football. I played football and I coach football. It's a good sport. But if there's any competition between your love for a sport and your love for God, we got real problems. We got real problems. God, my beloved, must never be second. He must never be third. He cannot even be tied for first. God must be number one in your heart and mind always. Always. He is the creator. He's the one that holds every molecule together in your body. Your very breath at this very moment is because of Him. He's the one, lest you forget, that loves you so much that He sent His Son to the cross to bear the penalty of your sins so that you, a sinner deserving of eternal death, could have what? Could have Him. Could have God. Could have eternal life forever and ever. Our love for God must be first, not only because God is worthy of it. I mean, He's God. He's worthy of our ultimate love, not only because of who He is, but because of what He's done in Christ for us. But by loving God first, my beloved, it's the only way that you won't ruin your life and the lives of those around you. Do you know that? Loving God first is also good for you. It's self-preserving. So if, for example, going back to the marriage Covenant husbands, if you love your wife most, even above God, well, you will make her an idol. She will become God to you. And instead of loving her as the image bearer that she is, you will be destructive in your relationship with her. And if you love your wife as God, or wives, you love your husbands as though God, then when that marriage ends because one leaves or one dies, and one of those things will eventually happen, you'll be destroyed because your God has failed you. If you lose your career and you love it most, I mean, your life is your work. The economy turns south. You lose your job. You don't get that promotion. What happens? You're devastated because your work was your greatest love. I think a great danger we have in our cultural moment is our children and our grandchildren If you love your children most, even more than God, or tied with God, then when your children get sideways in life, which they often do, or God calls one of your children home early, you are undone. You fall apart because you've made an idol out of your children. But my beloved, here's the great news. If you love Jesus most, your eternal husband most, It is right, not only because he is God and you are his bride, and therefore we're to love him most. So it's right in loving God and Christ most. But if you love him most, my beloved, you can know it is the one relationship that will never, ever end. Christ said, I'm never gonna leave you and I'm never gonna forsake you. So you have great hope in that relationship going on forever and ever and ever. So how do we get back to our first love if, like Ephesus, we have abandoned it? How do we get back there? Let me close with a few thoughts for you. First, we must look at the beginning of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The first step back is remembrance. Remember. Do you remember your conversion? Do you remember when, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God made you alive, and for the first time in your life, you saw the depth of your own sin? You saw the absolute holiness of God and you had that truly, eternally, aha moment. I'm in big trouble. And then God showed you Christ. He showed you the sacrifice. He showed you the love that Christ exercised on the cross to redeem a sinner like you. You repented and you believed and oh, what love there was. What love there was. We often talk about it as Christians as the honeymoon period. There should be no such thing. You should be in a perpetual honeymoon with the living God. Not, oh yeah, that first year was amazing and now I got into routine. What is the routine? The routine is Ephesus. It's obedience. It's orthodoxy. It's loveless. It needs repentance. Remember how your husband, Jesus Christ, was forsaken by God so you could be received by God. Remember that. Remember how Jesus, though innocent, was crucified and condemned so that you, though guilty, could be set free and what? Declared righteous. Remember that. Remember our Lord's wedding vow to you. I will never leave you, Jesus said. I will never forsake you, Jesus said. He made that vow to you and he will keep it because he is faithful. So the first thing you want to do is remember the incredible love that God has for you in Christ. Meditate on that. But then Jesus adds to it. He says, remember, and then what? Repent and do. Look at the latter part of verse five. Repent and do the works you did at first. So once you remember, you're rekindling your heart. You're saying, oh, I cannot believe how much God loves a sinner like me. You rekindle your heart in that love relationship because he loves you first. And then you do what? You seek forgiveness. You repent of your turning away, of abandoning your love for God and turning to other lovers. Because we always turn to something else. You repent of all the idols and all the attractions in your heart that you've been drawn to for your ego or for your pride or for self-glory. We are to seek forgiveness from God and then truly turn. Repentance means turning away from the sin, away from the false lover, and to our ultimate lover, the one that we were made to worship and love most, back to God, and we're to do that by the works Jesus says, we did it first. Now for Ephesus, that meant working hard to persevere in the midst of persecution. It meant remaining orthodox. So the things they were doing, Jesus says, now do it for the right reasons. Do the same thing you were doing in the very beginning that you're still doing now, but do it because you love me. Do it because I love you, not because you have to. My beloved, we are to be obedient from the heart with the right motives. So God is calling you back to that time when, you remember that time when you simply adored God for God? You just adored him. Someone would ask you, oh, oh, you're a Christian. You say, oh, yes, I love God so much. It wasn't even so much what Christ did for you. There's just an adoration and a deep love for who God is. Remember that time in your life. We want to get back to that. When you would sing to God and you'd pray to God and you'd meditate on his word for the pure joy of it. Did you sing like that today? Or did you say to yourself, do we have another song that we have to sing? Is he going to continue to pray? How many more readings before we get to the sermon? Or was it pure joy? Sing again, sing again. Because you love singing to your Lord. Remember that time when it was really easy to just love your brothers and sisters in Christ and to love the lost? We weren't so judgmental. We weren't so condemning. It was easy to love the difficult people because we're so overwhelmed with our love for God. Do you remember that time? Do you remember it? You love not to earn, but because you have. We love not to be accepted into the God's family, but because we're already in. How important is it to God that love is the foundation? Look at verse five again. Jesus said, remember therefore where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, Jesus said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know what that means, don't you? Jesus says, I'm the, you're not going to be a church anymore. The lampstand was the light of Christ. It was the presence of the Holy Spirit in those churches. Christ says, if you don't turn, if you don't do the things you did at first, but for the right motives, be out of your love for me, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove my presence from your church. That doesn't mean that they didn't still gather. They could still gather, same people, same building But the message of the gospel would not be there because a church without love is a church without the gospel. No love, no gospel. No gospel, no church. I believe that's why so many churches today, people who are gathering in buildings just like this, are not true churches in the eyes of God. I say that with all humility, my beloved. There is no love And there is no gospel. Therefore, it's not a church of Christ. They may even be like the Ephesians, sound in doctrine, fighting against the lies of the culture, working really hard in the midst of persecution, but without love, they are nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Jesus closes with these words. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus says, not only am I speaking, but the Holy Spirit is speaking as well. And it's to the churches, plural, that means us. He who has an ear, let him hear. If Christ is not our first love, if Christ is not your first love, then we are in danger. This very morning, Our love for God must be the foundation, it must be the source, it must be the fountain for all that we do as Christians. Every single thing you do, you must be able to say, I do it out of my love for God. I do it out of my love for Christ. Why are you here today? Out of my love for Jesus. Why do you pray to God out of your love for God? And if not, my beloved, if that's not what you can say, then make a course correction now because eternal life hangs in the balance. Last part of verse 7. Jesus said to the one who conquers, that's the one who prevails, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God, so the tree of life in paradise, that signifies eternal life with God. All the joy, all the blessings that come from the, to those who what? Who persevere to the end. Who are those people? It's those who do not get sidetracked in this life, chasing after other lovers and other gods. It's those who are obedient on the outside and filled with love for God on the inside. It's those who remained faithful to their love for God heart, mind, soul, strength to the end. What awaits? Jesus said it's paradise. It's paradise. A healthy church, my beloved, will be grounded in love. A true believer will live his life out of an abundance of his love for God. Are we a healthy church? Are we? Are you living as someone whose cup is overflowing with God's love? And is that being manifest in your love for one another? Jesus is saying to Ephesus, and I will say to you as I close, do not be fooled. Looks can be very, very deceiving. Let us examine ourselves individually and as a church. Let us ask ourselves, does our outside match our inside? Is love what motivates us? Is our love for God what motivates us to do what we do for God? And if not, then, my beloved, as you take communion today, and I'm so thankful we're having it, remember the love that God poured out for you in Christ to make you his. Remember that love. Repent today for not loving God most. Turn away from those other lovers. Turn back to God. Come under the covering of your faithful and eternal husband, Jesus Christ, and do what you did at first. Walk in obedience out of your love for God with great joy in your heart. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are sobering words. I pray that you would be gracious with all of my brothers and sisters here to take the teachings from your son's mouth to Ephesus and apply them to Christ Community Church. Let not one of us, Lord, and certainly let us not as a body leave this place today without a deep dive in examining why we do what we do. We do not want the lampstand taken from here and we certainly do not want to miss salvation. We don't want to miss the tree of life and paradise with you because we've gone through the motions and yet we've never loved We want to be people who do and love. So by your Holy Spirit, I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to examine ourselves this morning to that end. Where we are loving rightly, I pray, Lord, you would cause us to rejoice. Where we are not, I pray, you would cause us to remember, to turn, to repent, and to be healed. Do this work here, I pray, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.